Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on diabetic retinopathy. Today we will discuss how to prevent diabetic retinopathy, the importance of eye screening and early detection, different treatment options available and the role of the general practitioner and credential diabetes educator in preventing and managing diabetes retinopathy. My name is Jan and I'll be your host today. This podcast is sponsored by Viatris. Please note that the product information for the medications discussed in this podcast are available on our SoundCloud page for this podcast and on the learning management system. The learning objectives include understanding the impact of diabetic retinopathy for people living with diabetes. Secondly, to understand the importance of screening and early detection of diabetic retinopathy. Thirdly, to understand the treatment options available in Australia to people with diabetic retinopathy. And finally, to understand the role of the GP and the CDE in eye health in preventing and managing diabetic retinopathy. I'd like to introduce Professor Richard O'Brien, who is Clinical Dean of Medicine at the University of Melbourne, Austin Clinical School, and Director of Graduate Programs, Melbourne Medical School. He is also a Senior Endocrinologist and Director of the Lipid Service at Austin Health, and he joins us to share his clinical experience of more than 20 years in managing people with diabetes, and in particular, making a difference in diabetic retinopathy. So hi, Professor O'Brien. Nice to see you again. How are you today? Hi, Jan. It's lovely to see you again. Uh, I'm, I'm very well looking forward to this chat. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, as, as we've already mentioned, I'll be asking you about diabetic retinopathy and ways to help prevent vision impairment in, in people living with diabetes. So uh, perhaps you could, we could start by asking if you could what, tell us what is diabetic retinopathy and are all people living with diabetes at risk of developing it? And if so, what are the risk factors that lead to diabetic retinopathy? Yes, yeah, so there's no doubt that anybody with diabetes is potentially at risk of retinopathy. In fact, if you look worldwide, about a third of uh, all people with diabetes will develop some degree of retinopathy. And of those, about a third uh, can develop vision-threatening retinopathy. So it's certainly something we need to be very aware of. What is it? It's it's a, a chronic, progressive, potentially sight-threatening disease. It's, it's really a disease of the blood vessels of the retina predominantly, um, they can become ischemic, they can leak, and these can lead to uh, various uh, problems in the eye. We know that chronic hyperglycemia is very important. And so those two words, chronic, you know, a long time, and hyperglycemia, raised blood sugar, really represent two of the big risk factors, duration of diabetes and control. But other things can be important, including blood pressure, poor lipid control, things like cigarette smoking. So these are all potential underlying uh, risk factors. We need to be very aware of it in people with microalbuminuria because they already have some minor damage to the uh, kidney. And if you've got microalbuminuria, it's quite likely that there may be some eye damage. Things that we might see as risk factors as well could be anemia. And sometimes retinopathy can progress in pregnancy as well. Thank you for that. So what are the early signs of, of retinopathy? And if someone is showing early signs, how possible is it to prevent vision impairment? And finally, what's the best way to prevent vision loss? Well, that's a really good point. I mean, the, I think I can't emphasise enough that 
early on in diabetic retinopathy, there are no symptoms. And so certainly we can look at in the eye and see some signs of it, but the people with diabetes probably won't notice anything, often until quite significant eye damage has occurred. Certainly some people can experience floaters, a little bit of blurriness of the vision, sometimes some difficulty perceiving colour. Um, but really we want to try to slow the progression or stop diabetic retinopathy to prevent vision loss, hopefully before these sort of symptoms have occurred. And so getting eye checks, you know, visiting an eye professional early and having a proper assessment, really good assessment of the retina does require special equipment. And so generally a, a, an ophthalmologist or an optometrist is needed to do that. Um, we can talk a little later about what general practitioners might be able to do. But I think the, the important thing is getting in early and then early prevention as well good control of blood sugar. We're all aiming for that, of course, for all complications, but very important in retinopathy, making sure blood pressure is well controlled, making sure lipids are well controlled. These things all help early in the process. So when you talk about progression, is, do treatment options change depending on the progression of the disease? Yeah, that's a really important point. So um, it is a progressive disease and it's classified into non-proliferative and proliferative. So proliferative is um, uh, much more significant. Non-proliferative has a number of grades. Really, the, the earliest grade is, is something that we might call background retinopathy. That's certainly what uh, it was known as in the past. We've now got these new terms that describe it and we can grade each of these uh, terms. So if we look at non-proliferative retinopathy, microaneurysms, little dots in the retina, small uh, flame hemorrhages, uh, things like beading uh, of the, uh, the veins, um, these are, are things that can occur quite early. If the problem progresses, we can sometimes see things a bit like what they call cotton wool spots, little white patches, which can represent ischemia of the nerve fibre layer. And the, the ophthalmologist can grade these from mild to moderate to severe. Very mild cases are actually pretty common and don't necessarily progress to more severe retinopathy. But certainly when we're getting into the more severe stages of non-proliferative retinopathy, we do certainly need to be concerned. So then what about proliferative retinopathy? That's a more advanced form of the disease. The underlying cause is probably stimulation of growth factors, perhaps from ischemia of the retina, and we see growth of new vessels across the retina. The reason that that is a problem is that those new vessels are very fragile and they can burst. And if they burst, then we can get a retinal hemorrhage, and of course that can cause a sudden loss of vision. It resolves to some extent, but vision's never the same and there can be retinal detachment and scarring as a result. So we're really trying to prevent a retinopathy well before that. Now, there's something else that can occur in the retina, and that's diabetic macular edema. That's when we get leakage of the vessels. And if that fluid encroaches onto the macula, it can seriously impair vision. And as the fluid resolves, it can leave fatty deposits called hard exudates uh, behind. Interestingly, macular edema can actually occur at, at any stage of, of retinopathy and sometimes earlier on in, in diabetes than we might see with proliferative uh, retinopathy. Again, it's diagnosed by proper uh, eye examination.
treatment is dependent on the phases. And as you, you said, early in the course of uh, diabetes, there's a lot that endocrinologists, GPs, diabetes educators can do, particularly ensuring uh, good glycemic control, good control of blood pressure, ensuring screening. If it's more uh, severe, we, we certainly need people to be managed by ophthalmologists and laser treatment, particularly for proliferative retinopathy, where they literally zap those little vessels is the gold standard. Nowadays, uh, it, it, there is some use of injections into the eye um, for anti-VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor agents. These are commonly used for diabetic macular edema and sometimes for diabetic proliferative retinopathy. But laser treatment certainly is still the gold standard. But it, it, you know, it's not ideal. There is some scarring of the retina when that occurs. And so vision uh, is never absolutely perfect after these sort of treatments. Another reason we really want Want to try to prevent that uh, phase from happening. Now, as well as managing risk factors, the other thing that can help uh, prevent diabetic retinopathy or certainly slow the progression is the lipid-lowering drug phenofibrate. It's been shown uh, actually to slow the progression, uh, progression of diabetic retinopathy in a couple of very large trials. It's important to point out, though, that this doesn't replace all of those other strategies, good glycemic control, blood pressure control, etc. Thank you for that. Um, now, you mentioned phenofibrate. I wonder if uh, how you could tell us how it came to be used in terms of diagnose, for diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy in people with type 2 diabetes, and what about the use of it in people with type 1 diabetes? So I was involved in, in one of the big trials, which was the field study. Uh, and the field study uh, was a, a study done in uh, Australia and Finland, about 9,000 people, uh, that involved the use of uh, phenofibrate. Uh, and it, it was to look at the, the, the effect of phenofibrate, which is a lipid-lowering agent, of course, uh, on cardiovascular disease. Now, I should point out that when we're talking about diabetic retinopathy treatment, other lipid agents, statins, uh, zetamibe, gemfibrozole, uh, are not uh, relevant to this discussion. This is, uh, it is it is only phenofibrate that's indicated for the, the, the diabetic retinopathy treatment, and it's the one that's got the actual evidence. So what we did in the uh, field study is, as well as looking at cardiovascular events, we also wanted to look at the potential for phenofibrate to prevent diabetic retinopathy, and the pre-specified impact endpoint was a laser treatment. It's a pretty hard endpoint. Now, if the ophthalmologist decides somebody needs laser, it usually means that there is significant retinopathy present. There was uh, over 9,000 people in the field study. The incidence of laser treatment was recorded, and we found that over the course of the study, uh, there was a 31% reduction in the need for laser treatment. The interesting thing was it was for both proliferative retinopathy and also for macular edema. So when the field study was done, a laser treatment was really the standard treatment for macular edema. And both of those were reduced by the phenofibrate. 
We then had another study, the Accord study, that was done predominantly in the uh, USA. And the Accord study, I think, was quite nice because the patients were actually already treated with a statin, simvastatin, and then phenifibrate was added. There was a striking similarity in, in the findings, really. That in, in that study, phenifibrate reduced diabetic retinopathy by about 40%, um, and, and that used a, a, a combination of deterioration in a retinopathy scale uh, or surgery for very advanced retinopathy or laser treatment. So very similar findings to what we saw in the field study but a completely different population. And the other thing that was really striking was that if we looked at the people in the study who had pre-existing retinopathy, there was a 57% reduction in uh, retinopathy. In fact, in the people um, without retinopathy, there, there really wasn't uh, a significant benefit seen, at least over the course of the study period. So the absolute uh, risk reduction was 6.9%. And you only needed, if people had pre-existing retinopathy, we only needed to treat 14 people to prevent uh, one case of deterioration of retinopathy. Now, that's really impressive. I mean, things like statins and uh, the blood pressure drugs, we're usually talking about needing to treat 25, 30 or more people to prevent events. So that was really, really uh, significant. So uh, I think we've got two trials here done in different uh, continents, uh, both using phenifibrate and both showing a 40% also reduction in retinopathy. And in fact, both uh, showed that it was really uh, similar, uh, uh, sorry, that it was really confined to those with the pre-existing retinopathy. I should make an important point here. Although the phenifibrate is a lipid-lowering drug, the effect on retinopathy did not seem to depend on whether people had elevations of cholesterol or triglycerides or normal levels. This seemed to be independent. It's probably an anti-inflammatory effect, anti apoptotic effect, a direct effect of the drug. Now, Jan, you asked about type 1 diabetes, and uh, at this stage, phenifibrate is only indicated in type 2 because this is where the evidence is. We are doing a study, and I'm one of the investigators in a study called the FAME 1, where we're looking to see if phenifibrate can um, uh, reduce the progression of retinopathy in people with type 1 diabetes. Very exciting, and I hope we'll get some results in the next few years from that. So we need to watch this space. Definitely. So can you tell us a bit more about the dosing and safety of phenifibrate? Yeah, so it's pretty easy uh, in that it's a one-size-fits-all pretty much. Uh, it's a 145-milligram tablet. And so unless people have got significant renal impairment, uh, that's the same dose for everybody. It's once a day taken with or without food. It really doesn't matter. There is a 48-milligram dose used for people with uh, significant renal impairment. The uh, side effects are pretty uh, minimal. You sometimes see very slight abnormalities in liver function tests. In the field trial, there was a minute increase in pancreatitis from 0.5 to 0.8%, a surprising finding given that uh, phenifibrate reduces triglycerides, which themselves can be a risk factor. Uh, and there was a very tiny increase in uh, um, deep vein thrombosis. Again, um, a, a somewhat surprising finding, but we're talking about uh, fractions of a percent uh, increase here, so very small. We don't see, um, unlike with statins, we don't tend to see muscle pains with um, phenofibrate. 
rate. The thing that people will notice and, and prescribing doctors may be concerned to see that the serum creatinine can rise with fenifibrate. Now, the reason is not because it reduces GFR, but because EGFR, uh, estimated GFR that we get back on our standard blood tests, uses serum creatinine to estimate GFR, it appears that GFR falls when somebody starts on phenifibrate. It's actually, um, there's probably a slight increase in muscle uh, creatinine uh, production, and there's also a change in tubular secretion. But GFR is actually unchanged, so don't be alarmed if the creatinine rises and the GFR uh, falls. If it's more than a 50% uh, change, then you might need to think about um, uh, ceasing the drug temporarily because that change probably isn't due to the drug itself. So typically, if someone's got a GFR of, let's say, 60 and you start them on, on phenifibrate, you might see it drop down to 50 to 55, somewhere like that. That would not be uncommon at all. It's a completely reversible and, and certainly nothing to be concerned about. I gather there's a complete list of the side effects on the uh, uh, ADA learning management system. Yes, there is. Thank you for that. So what is the role then of the GP in preventing and managing retinopathy? And also, what is the role of the CDE in promoting eye health and preventing vision loss? But both have a really, really important uh, role to play. Uh, I think um, it, we need to firstly ensure that patients are being screened. Now, Screening really requires either a, a slit lamp and, and sophisticated equipment such as a, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist has or a, a retinal camera. And so some general practices may have retinal cameras. There are now some handheld non-midriatic cameras that are available for a few thousand dollars that, that um, general practices may be able to have. But it, you do need to get a really good view of the retina. I think just the old uh, looking with a direct ophthalmoscope is not adequate. It has to be either a camera or somebody that's that's properly skilled in this. So uh, I think the role, and I, I look, I include the endocrinologist in this, I think all of our role is to make sure that our patients are getting regular screening. Often the DNEs are going to be those that are most in touch with the patients and they're really well placed, I think, uh, to make sure that that happens. Uh, for the general practitioners, if a patient's found to have retinopathy, to make sure that there is a specialist referral uh, to a, a skilled uh, ophthalmologist. I hope that diabetes educators, when they see the patients, ask them about their eye health. Have they had a, an examination? Uh, typically, we would recommend a, an examination once every two years if somebody has no retinopathy at all. But in indigenous uh, patients, it's recommended that they have annual checks. If there is retinopathy present, then review should be done at least on an annual basis. I think asking patients if they've had changes in their vision or visual fields is, is uh, useful. Um, as I said, most of the time, people are not going to have symptoms, but of course, they may do. And so that's important to, to ask about that. And um, I think um, encourage them to, to make sure they, they see their eye 
uh, health professionals. And there is a um, look. I think there's a role for uh, GPs and educators to enrol patients if they can in in a really good program, which is something called Keepsight. Now, Keepsight, if the patient agrees, you can enrol them in this program. It's the collaboration of the Eye Vision Institute, Diabetes Australia, a number of organisations, and there's actually a register of the patients, and they get reminders to go and have their eye checked. Because when you ask a patient, when did you have your eyes checked? And they say, oh, I think it was about six months ago. You often find it's 18 months ago or longer. Time goes fast. So it's it's um, there's, a, there's a website, www.keepsight, K-E-E-P-S-I-G-H-T, dot org, dot A-U. Really, really useful service, and I recommend that. Thank you. I think you've answered the last question I had for you, which was around the recommended schedule for visits. Was there anything else you wanted to highlight in that particular area? I think just to to, to go over that again, so at least every two years for everybody, annually if there's any diabetic retinopathy present, annually if it's an Indigenous person with diabetes, and more frequently if there is significant diabetic retinopathy present. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, And thank you for answering that question. Before we go, can you summarise the key takeaway points for us? And do you have any tips or tools to encourage clients to see their eye health professionals? Well, well, certainly. So so I think... Very importantly, diabetic retinopathy is a progressive disease. It results from microvascular damage to capillaries inside the retina. It is poor glycemic control and duration of diabetes that are significant risk factors, but it can occur in any patient. Remember that it's largely asymptomatic in its early stages, so it's so important uh, that we get a comprehensive eye examination done regularly to make sure that the, the retina is clear. And I think in terms of how can we get our patients uh, to, to have more regular reviews, as I said, I think the, the KeepSight program, registering them with KeepSight is very helpful. But I think when you see patients, whether it's uh, an endocrinologist, a diabetes nurse educator, a GP, remember, it's a very simple question. When did you have your last eye check? Now, something else that's very important is that very often we we don't get correspondence necessarily uh, that patients have actually been. And so when a patient says, I had my eye check uh, six months ago, I think particularly for general practitioners, it's worth looking up to see, well, when was that last report from the optometrist, making sure that they are really getting those things done. All people living with diabetes uh, are at risk, so we want to deal with those modifiable risk factors, particularly glycemic control, but also blood pressure control, control of lipids, stopping people smoking, early referral and management when retinopathy is present, certainly uh, considering phenofibrate, and I think the diabetes educator has a role to perhaps suggest, um, and and nurse practitioners indeed prescribe phenofibrate uh, if there is some degree of retinopathy present. It is indicated in Australia uh, for prevention of diabetic retinopathy in people who have existing diabetic retinopathy and uh, so I think if we all work together um, and and really uh, uh, remind people about the importance of screening, get in early with risk factor prevention, phenofibrate if it's appropriate, we can see a reduction in the future in uh, vision-threatening retinopathy, and that's really what it's all about. 
Professor O'Brien, thank you once again. It's really been great to actually catch up with you and talk to you again today. And I'm sure that this podcast has inspired our listeners to start thinking more about diabetic retinopathy and their role in helping to manage and prevent it. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. And thank you to Viatris for sponsoring this podcast. I understand there is an extensive reference list that's been provided relating to this podcast, and that can be found on the learning management system as well. And to receive CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au. Look for podcasts in 2021 and evaluate this CPD activity. So until next time, it's thank you and goodbye.